Hello and welcome to a very special episode of the Steve and George podcast because we are in the thick of just about approaching movie season uh, with the Oscars just around the corner. I think by the time this goes out, the Oscar nominations will be available. We don't know them yet. So um, any of our predictions uh, here could be way, way off the mark. We're not actually doing Oscar predictions, though. We're doing, <laughs> we're doing our favourite, the best films we saw in 2018. So I'll jump in there now quickly, Steve, and say that none of mine have any chance of being nominated for this year's Oscars because some of these crops up in last year's Oscars. Right. So, wait, how are we doing this? Are we doing, yeah. <laughs> are we doing the best films we saw that came out last year or just the best films we happened to see last year? I think I'm leaning towards the latter. Maybe we didn't quite read off the same hymn sheet, <laughs> sing off the same hymn sheet. Mine are essentially my personal films that I watched in 2018 and loved in 2018. Okay. Whichever year they may have been made in. I like that because there's a there's a YouTuber I follow who's a really popular video game YouTuber and he'll do a best of list every year. Nerd alert. A nerd over here. And uh, he'll kind of occasionally just throw in like Super Mario Brothers 2 at number six of his sure. top 10 of the year because just, he just says, I happen to play a lot of this this year. And he'll well, that's, that's funny because one of my favourite films that I watched was the Mario Bob Hoskins. <laughs> oh boy. What a treat. I'm yanking your chain, Steve, don't worry. Um, uh, so let's dive in. Um, I guess this, I'd also just, uh, I guess I'll just say, because one of our, our, maybe our key feature of these podcasts, if we're going to have a feature that we can call on, will be the recommendations that we pull out of, pull out of thin air at the end of each episode. And I suppose this is a kind of a full length recommendations episode in many ways. So don't hold your breath for books and music at the end of it because this is almost exclusively just a film recommendations hit. And I guess we could, if people lap this up, we could devote an episode to books or music further down the line as well. So, um, yeah, this is this is for all your recommendations fans out there. You'll be chock full of chock full of films. It's all, it's already anachronistic to say they'll have an armful of DVDs. <laughs> that already sounds really old fashioned. So box of Betamax. <laughs> yeah. Um, You'll you'll have a full Amazon watch list by the end of it. Um, I uh, it's funny because I didn't feel like I saw. I felt like I didn't see many films last year, but actually I went through. I actually looked towards the end of the year. I sort of sort of brought it home and managed to catch up on a few things. But there's still some uh, there's still some guilty misses here. So you're talking about the cinema, are you? I'm talking about the films that actually yeah did come out last year and like I I missed one or two of the the very big ones uh i missed the star is born so no no opinion is going to be given on that uh, sure. big films that's probably going to get oscar nominations i imagine um but uh i'm I, a bit of news george i'm going to be in the city of los angeles next month so city of angels so i will be there for oscar season um i'll be within Spitting distance of the Chinese <laughs> theatre. So perfect, perfect for some of the less popular recommendations. Weinstein, if Weinstein shows up, <laughs> we could do a very gimmicky podcast of me just standing by the Chinese theatre. <laughs> um, uh, so, why don't you kick us off, George? What 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 did you like and love last year? What, well, once again, just to clarify that these are very dated if we're talking about the 2019 Oscars, but a uh, film that I went to the cinema and absolutely loved. I'll start fairly boringly with Phantom Thread last year, if we're talking about films we saw in last that's year's on, calendar that's year. That's on my list, George. Oh, already we're doubling up. Um, we both love Paul Thomas Anderson. You can't really argue with Daniel Day-Lewis in that film. It's, if that's his last performance, it's another one of his great performances, and I would say probably was deserving of a Best Actor um, statue. Uh, great film if you love fashion, dresses, the 1950s, um, just beautiful interiors, beautiful cinematography, sets, costume. Uh, a fabulous film, and I don't know, he's not done too much stuff set in London, and it was nice to see PTA do a bit of work in London. I think a bit of the master crops up in London, but this kind of really captured just a, a beautiful part of the country, and I think they go out to out to the countryside, out to Ireland in it as well. The cinematography is just beautiful. I loved it. Yeah, I um, I think you think of him 
at least I do as a very quintessentially American director. So it's actually kind of feels out of his wheelhouse. Yeah. In, in terms of it's a very, you know, a very staid atmosphere in, in essentially quite, quite an almost, uh, quite an almost oppressively, you know, orderly household. A lot of, a lot of the film is kind of, is a very introverted setting where it does feel like, it feels like a lot of it is set in his house where he does, you know, he works with the dressmakers and obviously he's a, you know, renowned, uh, renowned dressmaker and takes a new lover who kind of ends up disrupting all of his very careful, precise routines. And uh, there's some really funny lines and stuff, even just that there's a small scene at the beginning where he's very particularly ordering breakfast and he keeps adding things to the item, uh, you know, um, just keeps adding like, and bacon. And (laughs) Um, it's a really funny little scene. And uh, I kind of had a wobble with P.T. Anderson than his previous film, Inherent Vice, which I did not take to. Uh, yeah, we fell asleep in each other's arms in the cinema, Steve. <laughs> well, there were other people there. I don't want to. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, but I, it, I, I, I found that very flat for me, and it was, uh, it was almost like this one was. I feel like because this this film didn't do particularly well in the box office, if I remember correctly, and I, I almost feel like, in some ways, he got punished for the last film a bit or, or people because i think people would have had more excitement and interest for it if they weren't a bit flagged from the last one um but i i, I and i kind of had the same thing i i didn't even see it at the cinema and i'm a fan of his but i ended up catching up with it and i was like wow i, I should have watched this sooner because i uh it looked beautiful on a big screen as well it really suited it yeah yeah it, it, it kind of the ending is I don't um we won't talk about the ending but it's 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 kind of an odd uh, an odd little turn in the last sort of fifteen minutes of the film uh, in some ways but yeah it changes um, what the film's about in many ways it does and and a lot a lot of his films do have kind of interesting or strange endings mm. um, but yeah that that's one maybe we could discuss at some point but I don't want to give it away if people haven't yeah. seen it but. I have just a well a nice little bit of trivia Steve is I guess his character in the film is in many ways modeled on Hardy Amis the dressmaker and uh, a couturier uh, to the queen and Hardy Amis made our or designed our school uniforms Ah, that, that so, I, I was going to say, is it the very same Hardy Amos? Who's yeah. So I think very much based on him. So um, yeah, nice, nice little tidbit for you there. Yeah, um, and a score, another great score by Johnny Greenwood from Radiohead, who does these sort of weird, intense scores. He seems to only do scores for Paul Thomas Anderson for them, but um, they're always like more atmospheric than like they're not like a kind of um, Hans Zimmer or a you know, John Williams' score, where they are imposing, they're almost very, like, um, more about moods and energy and kind of, I don't know, very reflecting, like, whatever the main character is doing at the time. But they're, 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 they're these kind of scores that aren't totally satisfying to listen to on their own, but they work really well with the film. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, okay, you get back to me with yours next one. Um, okay, I'll give you a film that I enjoyed. Um, this one... Uh, this one was an, quite an acclaimed film critically. Um, I think it did fairly well, but it was the, um, the horror film, uh, kind of artistic horror film, Hereditary, um, which was, it's, it's interesting. It's one of those ones that did get some, uh, it, it did get pretty good critical acclaim, but I feel like it more divided audiences. Um, uh, and I remember some people who saw it were kind of, not not as into it and a couple of people like me were like really into it and I remember like listening on uh I think it was the Brett Easton Ellis podcast and he he's had the same experience he went with a friend and he he said he loved it and his friend was just like I hate that and um it's uh, I've not seen it does it rely on a, a kind of a high concept gimmick or no it doesn't really it's um it it it's kind of a film that that unfolds grad quite gradually and uh it's but but the thing is it 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 does have that category of initially i think it's been put in that category of sort of art house horror which is a little bit unfair really because i i kind of have a bit of a negative association with those movies where sometimes some some of those are very hit or miss like i'm thinking films like the babadook Mm -hmm. uh, films like it follows 
uh, the witch and they can sometimes the ones that under the bracket of art house horror it's it's not maybe not enough scares and sometimes it just relies on a lot of sort of you know creepy atmosphere and things mm. like that and and often kind of very heavy-handed symbolism like something like the babadook where it's kind of it's very heavy-handed about like a mother's grief or something and right um whereas this is more like actually in some ways that more like a traditional horror film a bit more closer to something like a shining or something i don't know it has more more to owe to that to me and like classic kind of certain mm -hmm. ghost stories but it's like it's set up is almost like a family have this tragedy and it's a family it's quite laden with tragedy and and uh something happens early on in the film that kind of affects the entire family and it's kind of them dealing with it and it's uh yeah, it kind of introduces bits of the supernatural gradually. Uh, but I found myself by the last, like, the last sort of act of it, I thought was really scary. And mm. I hadn't felt that in the cinema for ages, actually sitting in a horror film and feeling scared and not just waiting for, you know, more monsters to jump out. Yeah. It, was, it was genuinely like, I don't know where this is going. and I don't really know what's going to happen at all, nice. which, is, which you don't get much. But um, Who yeah. directed it? It's a guy's first feature. Um, I cannot remember his name. Let me just see. Hereditary director. Um, it's Ari Aster. Okay. Um, yeah. So, uh, so yeah, Hereditary. Check it out if you haven't. Nice. Yeah, very good. Um, well, I'll... Um, um, an extremely good performance by... I think it's Tony Collette. She's in About a Boy. Yeah, okay. Uh, she, yeah, in in a just world, she should be nominated for an Oscar for it. Yeah, I've seen I've seen little kind of mentions. If critics are doing their lists of who should pick up awards, she's been mentioned a few times, but I don't know if that's going as far as kind of the wider actual Academy. But definitely, a lot of people appreciated that performance. So, right, yeah, strong from her. I'll um I'll reply, Steve, with um something completely different. Uh, I'm not sure if you've seen this. Uh, Loving Vincent. Uh, yes, I did see that. Oh, I thought it was fabulous. Um, so if you, if you haven't seen it, it's about Vincent van Gogh, Gogh, however, however it should be pronounced. Um, it's a film that kind of investigates the story of his death, I suppose, and the events leading up to his suicide, death, what, whatever occurred, they kind of investigate if there's any variations on the kind of assumed tale. But the whole film is, like, it's an animation, but it's entirely painted um oil paintings in the style of of his his work so um i think they used maybe 20 or 30 of his kind of most prominent paintings as a kind of template backdrop so starry night would take up a kind of a 10 minute chunk and they'd they'd work from that but the whole whole film was put together by a crew of something like a hundred oil painters all painting in that style all painting on proper slates and they shot something like 60,000 individual frames repainted then kind of changed and touched up um and I, th I just thought it was amazing for a piece of animation ambition wise um i think what won at the oscars last year was it was it um coco yeah yeah i think um, which i'm sure kind of did all the sort of traditional kind of you know disney or pixar you know well-written great scope and all this kind of stuff but just as a piece of animation i thought this was incredible to find that many people capable of painting in that style in itself was impressive um had a really good cast like cersei romans in it and a lot of other big names at the moment as the voice actors um it's not super long it's easy i think it's on netflix at the moment but it's just it's beautiful really well done and kind of puts you back into going out and investigating some of his artworks again i thought it was fantastic yeah i uh I I agree with all of that. I found it um, really sort of really moving from very early on, and it's it's uh, it's almost it's very like takes its time with it unfolding, and it's almost more meeting certain characters who interacted with him throughout his life. Some of them were his subjects in paintings uh, that uh, that he used, and 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 they kind of give you more and more their version of Vincent and. And what they, you know, if they saw him as as friendlier, or some people saw him as extremely brooding, and and it kind of goes through his different, in the, you know, different periods and parts of his character. But it, it it kind of all adds up to, yeah, it's it's just like 
a, an almost amazing way to learn about someone's work. Yeah, uh, yeah just almost like an interactive piece of uh, history, really. Um, and like you say, the visual style is is takes it to like this level that it's it's so much it's so not a gimmick the visual mm. style of it it's like this constant like beautiful um celebration of his style and yeah the kind of yeah I, I guess maybe it would probably be quite hard to do there aren't a ton of artists with as many pieces in a consistent style that you would allow for that very like there's loads of artists have distinct styles but maybe they're limited to a certain period of their work whereas it feels like for him he kind of painted all his stuff in this kind of crazy frenzy of creativity right so there's at least consistency in the brushstroke or technique um that kind of allows them to pad out a whole film whereas if they were well i can't i can't think of many other artists where it would work so it was just like the perfect combination of source material and approach to making it yeah I, I loved it yeah uh i agree um you want me to jump to another one please do um okay so did you manage last year george to catch the film first man i didn't i managed to watch it very recently uh in preparation for this podcast trying to get a few more under my belt <laughs> and this one actually for me if i was if i was sort of ranking i would sort of put that and phantom thread as probably my sort of sort of like my joint number number 2 maybe of the year okay um, strong um, uh but uh yeah i think um some uh, you know the thing about this film is i think it got again I think in some ways compared to like, it, so the director is Damien Chazelle who directed Whiplash and La La Land and kind of had this one-two punch of two pretty big hits really. Um, that kind of made a lot of noise for him and like his debut Whiplash is obviously a really, really uh, well-executed film. And then, La La Land just did amazingly well, didn't it? La La Land like got nominated for a bunch of Oscars and you know, people really liked it. and. So, so he's kind of like this really hot young director, and it's like you know that this is his third feature. Third feature. In some ways, it got the least attention, and and then there was all this sort of pseudo controversy about where why the American flag wasn't on the moon in film, which is kind of you know having watched a film, it, it didn't really. It, it was something I wouldn't have noticed if there wasn't discussion about it. Sure. It was much more about Neil Armstrong's as a man's journey than. The, than the actual wider journey of you know, America getting to the moon. But it was, um, that, that sort of seemed like a non-controversy to me. But it was, um, it's really almost because you expect that a Neil Armstrong bio, uh, you expect a Neil Armstrong story is going to either be sort of some tedious biopic that's going to chart his entire life, or you think it's going to be some kind of overly schmaltzy, um, deifying kind of thing. Um, and and I think I think people almost just had that interpretation, and then didn't see the film. Mm -hmm. okay. um, for for some people, because uh, again, it was one of those ones that the that seemed to quite get some critical acclaim, but a lot of audiences just seemed to not turn up so much for mm -hmm. it. And um, and uh, Ryan Gosling gives a really like restrained performance. I would say that's the way I would describe it. But in a in a way that it sounds like damning with faint praise, but restrained in a really good way, in that he is playing quite an introverted man yeah. who, you know, is obviously um, very, you know, is obviously chosen for the fact that he can keep a cool head in a yeah. very, very difficult scenario. And they show that early on in one of the earlier missions that uh, I think it was the Gemini something that, that kind of, they, they go into a, like a really frightening spin uh, while they're at, like up, uh, above the Earth's atmosphere, and they're, they're spinning like over one t time per second, and it's like going extremely fast, and he's managing to not pass out and managing mm. to bring the air, bring it back down and uh, save the mission. And it's just like it it's super tense, even though you know the outcome, and it's uh, yeah, just unexpectedly moving. But but it's like oh wow, they I almost constantly admired they didn't go there, they didn't like. As much as I love Aaron Sorkin, they didn't make him a fast-talking genius with, yeah. like, I, we're going to have loads of fast-talking wisecracks because we're astronauts and we're physicists and we're really, really smart and everyone's snappy. It was just sort of believable. The whole thing was believable and it sort of focused on... So the I've, I've not seen this, but 
that's a really interesting point, right? That making a kind of sort of a hero's journey story about these guys who are deliberately selected because they don't make a big fuss about kind of extremes. Like I, I've read and seen the right stuff. I don't know if you've seen that. And that's about the the Mercury astronauts. So I guess like one or two intakes. I think Armstrong was taken in what the Gemini one. So they were the guys before. And one of those, I think third or fourth guy to ever go up for the US in space, like he fell asleep like during takeoff no like are you okay and he just wasn't responding because he was just asleep like he's just completely chill he's got like these huge rockets blowing up around him and all this stuff going on so yeah they're not you know they're not going to be like these soliloquizing kind of crazy yeah. talking guys right so it's it's really interesting and from what it sounds like a film that well it was a film that i wanted to see and i sort of missed it it, it had a bit of a weird launch date or release date i'm using rocket terminology <laughs> um, release date um so maybe that's why i didn't catch it but from my understanding is it's all like super close shots and it's quite tight and there isn't you know there are these huge kind of scapes behind them it's all about the man and it's a very tight and focused piece yeah yeah and there's some like there's like one of the the, the main launch like into moon part is actually like really breathtaking like pure like pure cinematic like that that part in Interstellar where he takes off and, and the music swells and there's just some like great moments of cinema in it, but it's not, it's not a flashy film. So in, in some ways I could see why people might like it, but it might just not, it might not spark conversation with people where it's like, it, it's not, it's not deifying in you know, Armstrong and the astronauts and it's not giving some kind of new interpretation of some kind of, uh, here's a story you didn't know about it. But so, so I could imagine maybe it just didn't spark enough where people mm. were talking about it, but um, I really enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, and it, it kind of makes you realize, God, the, the claustrophobia and smallness of those early spacecraft are, um, the whole thing is terrifying. They, they capture the terror of the experience they were actually going through. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's just like all sorts of space, exp space exploration stuff is fascinating. So yeah, I'll, I'll definitely check that one out um that's tipped for some oscars is it i don't know actually um i don't know i, I imagine after la la land got loads of accolades well you know i i, I, I couldn't imagine damien chazelle being nominated again after something as big as that having just happened but fair enough yeah okay well we'll find out tomorrow steve yeah. um okay well i'll um i'll reply with with another one of mine again very different i'm not sure if you've seen this yet but i've been championing it for a while was the square ah um, i still really want to and have oh it's it's fabulous so it's um the director is i'm not gonna be able to pronounce his name ruben ostland a swedish director um so his previous film which again i really loved was called force majeure um and that was kind of small scale in its kind of depiction of its ambition so that his previous film was about a uh, family who are on a skiing holiday and they're sat at a restaurant having lunch and an avalanche happens and in the kind of chaos of the avalanche the father of the family does a runner leaves his wife and children to kind of die in the avalanche and then three or four seconds later it wasn't as bad as they thought it would be and it's the rest of the film and it's quite a long film is about that awkwardness of you kind of bailed on us. Oh, no, I didn't. And it re he really plays on the kind of interpersonal relationship in a small family and picks up on awkwardness. It's definitely a comedy, but a very dark comedy. Um, this is kind of follow-up to that is set almost entirely in a kind of modern art gallery in Sweden. It's set sort of weirdly set slightly in the future, but not really. I couldn't, I couldn't quite work out the setting, but I think it's a it's in Gothenburg or Stockholm, one of the snazzier cities in, in Sweden. But it's just a complete satire on the modern art world. And whereas his previous film was all, all kind of Swedish language and I think almost exclusively a kind of Scandi cast, this one's got Dominic West's in it, um, Elizabeth Moss and a few like bigger international actors and then lots of Swedes and Danes as well. So it kind of flits between English and Swedish, but just some incredibly laugh out loud satire moments, a lot of good stuff about PR. It's got maybe the most awkward, I would say, sex scene of any film I've seen for a long time, certainly any above board film I've seen for a long time, Steve. He's um, a lot of films. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's really funny. Um, 
Yeah, it's almost a series of sketches tied around an art gallery, and then there's a bit of a narrative bringing everything together. But if you hate some bits, you will love others. I'd kind of recommend it to everyone to check out if you like cringy, well-delivered, dark humour. Um, yeah, loved it. That film is The Square. Is that right? Boom. Um, lovely. Um, I'm going to give one that was... Um... I'm going to go, go for one that was more patchy. Uh, I'm curious to see if you saw, because this isn't one of my favourite films of last year. It's almost a film where I, I'm interested if other people liked it or not. But uh, did you manage to catch on Netflix The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, the new I, Coen Brothers film? I didn't. It's on my to-watch list. Um, I heard, uh, before you kind of fill me in, I heard from a few people who watched it on quite high-definition TVs that it looks horrible. Um, and we've had this conversation before about high def often not being great for filmmaking it sort of makes everything look really plastic and like they're on a set and I'd been sort of scared off of it by that but I don't know if that was the experience you had right yeah it's um so it's kind of um it's kind of it's obviously the Coen brothers who like have done the western before they've done true grit they did no country for old men and this is uh more of them having having a bit more fun a bit more irony they're almost ironic short stories um a lot of them a lot of them focused on death uh, as a theme really but are they uh, all standalone stories yeah they're standalone and there's no real tie in between them um and uh yeah it's it's told like there's a you know each one almost opens with a storybook and there's like the chapter uh you know you actually can see the written chapter and then they go into the story and um yeah there 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 are some standout moments in it and that's why it's something that's worth checking out because there are some there are some real highlights but there's um it's kind of one of these anthology things where you know i i i don't know if it's like once you take it as a whole um there's something that's almost some you have fun in the individual stories but then as a whole i don't know if you feel just so like less than the sum of its parts kind of maybe thing. maybe a bit like that yeah um that that's probably the way to put it and um and and you know you just, you have ones that don't work so well for you but there's there's great bits there's a you know there's a great like tom waits performance and one of the stories is essentially just him alone um there's a, you know, the first one is is really funny and kind of strange. And uh, there's a James Franco one that's kind of got like a good punchline. But, but um, yeah, I don't, I don't know if, uh, you know, when you, when you look at the heights, they have scaled with something like No Country for Old Men. I, I think that's like a, a very different level. But this is much more of them almost almost in a sandbox playing a bit more when... Netflix probably gave them a lot of money to mess around with, right? And just not going to say no. Yeah, and maybe it's almost it's almost like we can try out a few different ideas and um, yeah. you know do some interesting things. But uh, it's it, yeah. Uh, Did you have any problem with the visuals? Um, some of them seemed a bit. The first from the first bit, it does have a bit of that hyper real thing that yeah, that, like you like said, the frame like, rate's too high or yeah. It look, I think the first one, the first one or two, look more like that. But I didn't notice it as it went on. But okay. It does a. Uh, it does have a bit of that jarring effect. It's like the Hobbit. <laughs> yeah, the Hobbit was the worst one I've ever had for that. In the yeah. First Hobbit, um, the whole early Shire scenes look like you feel like you're watching a behind-the-scenes featurette. Yeah, the first time I really noticed this high def thing was with Modern Family, the sitcom, and I think from I don't know season three to four, they obviously switched up to like really high def cameras. And suddenly everything in the set just looked like it was made of polystyrene. Like they'd pick something up and it clearly didn't weigh anything. And that was obvious. Whereas the lower quality, they could kind of hide that sort of stuff. So yeah. um, I guess, yeah, I don't really know. You don't, it's great for sport, you know, but for certain films, they just don't need to be that, that sheen and pristine. I don't know. Um, anyway. Yeah. Uh, superhero films can sometimes look like, it's like, oh, that's, that's Chris Evans wearing a suit, wearing a Captain America suit. There. Right, but often, I mean, we're talking often about films that aren't filmed in front of green screen as well. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. You lose a lot of depth with it, I feel. Um, yeah. yeah. It's kind of pretty nerdy first world film problem, I suppose. My camera is too good. 
<laughs> it's too real now. Yeah, but the sitcom, sitcoms suffer a lot from it, I think. Sitcom. Yeah, just because it's just people stood in a kitchen. It doesn't need to look look like that. Um, I have I have one more uh, film that was released last year. We actually talked about it a few episodes ago, but I'll, I'll bring it back up briefly. It was American Animals. Um, oh, you did mention this. Yeah, which was... And again, I've forgotten who it's produced for, but it was produced for another one of these like streaming services, not not one of the big ones. But um, it was fantastic, uh, really intense kind of true story crime caper about some uh, university students who rob a library for some very expensive books, and it's about how they did it. And the film is put together with interviews with the with the real guys and then people playing them, and um, it's. It's, it's gripping as a kind of true crime thing and they're sort of like bungling students so it's it's quite amusing and it's like how would I do that myself it's it's interesting in that way but it's also really interesting about how it plays with memory because they're talking about something that happened in maybe 2002 or three and one guy will tell his recollection of quite a non you know a non-eventful moment we met someone in a cafe and then the other guy will tell his version of it and the way that their memories are different is is really interesting and it makes you think about how you perceive what is going on around you so um yeah on a basic level it's like a fun and interesting crime caper but it also adds some really interesting questions about truth and yeah veracity and those sorts of things so i'd really recommend that if you can get to see it uh all right and how is that so american animals and that is that is an american film right yeah, I'm going to Google. I feel like I'm, I'm just trying to wonder why I didn't hear or see anything about it at all. Like, it's the one film I, I don't have any picture of. So it was fairly know. recent. I think I saw it in maybe November um, right. was its release date. So it was produced. Well, this is really gripping, gripping podcasting when people are Googling uh, a production company. Um, it was made for... Ah, yeah, so it was made for MoviePass, which was that kind of all-you-can-watch ticketing. I don't know, if, scam's the wrong word for it, but I think they offered a lot more than they'd be able to deliver, right? So you paid like $15 a month to be able to watch as many films at the cinema as you wanted, and it just it wasn't viable in the long run. But I don't right. know if it still exists, but it doesn't exist at too many theatres. But this was a film that they they had made, so I don't think they'll be making too many more. But um, yeah, it's really really good. Definitely worth checking out. You always remember to make money on the scam if you're going to do it. <laughs> it's not. I don't think it was a scam. I don't think. I'm, I don't think I'm at all allowed to say I love, that. I love it. Uh, yeah, I don't think they'd describe it as a scam. <laughs> yeah, um, apologies to all involved. Um. Yeah. Okay. Oh, and it's got that. It's got that chap out of American Horror Story in it. Uh, Evan Peters. That's the boy. Quicksilver in X Men. Um, he's good. Um, also in an episode of The Office. American mm. Office as Michael Scott's nephew. Um, the um, there was another one I had that I really enjoyed. Um, and you won't have seen this, George, given your. Uh, your, how should we describe, um, would you say you have a sort of antipathy to the superhero genre? How would you describe? Yeah, apathy, just complete, just a complete indifference, a shrug of the shoulders, I think. Right. I've seen, I mean, I've seen a few, but it's more the, what's it called, like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, or whatever, I'm just not really, I'm, there's a place for it, it's, it's cool, I, I get that people love them, I'm just not really bothered by them, so I've not really yeah. You're, you're, yeah, that's a better word. You're not, you're not, you don't hate them. You're just more. No, no, it's just not my thing. Um, so probably one of the most interesting, original, fun, uh, Marvel films came out this year, and it came right at the finish line. Uh, because Marvel obviously had two huge hits this year with uh, Black Panther and Infinity War, which were kind of these like box office monsters, but. Right at the end, uh, squeaked in this unassuming Spider-Man film into the Spider-Verse, um, which is uh, which which wasn't exciting when it was trailered, and it seemed just like a sort of strange spin-off. Uh, so is that the animated one? Yeah, it's animated and almost weird. Or it almost seems like a hybrid two D, three D animation is 
the best way to describe it. It's it's uh, yeah, it's somewhere in between, but it um, has this really distinctive visual style. It almost plays like a comic book. They they play a lot of kind of comic book tropes, and it it's got a completely bonkers story that ends up just being really refreshing because I guess it's not. I guess with the Spider Man one, it's very rinse and repeat. Um, they've tended to go over the same characters. The same How thing. many Spider-Man reboots have we had in the last 20 years? And they tend to reboot it a lot, which yeah. is extremely frustrating when you don't want to see another origin movie. But um, this one kind of just takes you on this strange, you know, it, it starts off and it's a, it's a small kid who lives in the Bronx. He's like Afri- African-American. Um, sorry, I think it might be Harlem or Bronx, but he, he basically ends up, you know, at the very beginning, you get the whole Peter Parker story and it's like, okay, let's go over this one more time. And they zip through it like, you know, in like 60 seconds. But then you open on this kid and he goes through and then he ends up getting bitten by a radioactive spider and becomes Spider-Man. And as he carries on, you see that in his universe, Peter Parker does exist and Spider-Man does already exist. So he's another one. Mm. And, uh, but but he ends up basically at the very beginning sees Peter Parker get defeated by the Kingpin, and uh, and then as things go on, so so the story keeps going on, and it's more with his family and his uncle. But then another Peter Parker shows up as the other one gets defeated, and basically you see that there's this rift, and the Peter Parker that's shown up now is kind of from a universe where Peter Parker's kind of become jaded, got messed up, kind of messed things up with Mary Jane. He's a bit overweight. He's kind of not, he's kind of bored with, you know, he's kind of been there, done it all. And he kind of shows up and has to mentor this new kid. But as they go on, they see that there's even more Spider-Man who's like, there's one that's Gwen Stacy, who is Peter Parker's love interest. In another universe, she became Spider-Man and became Spider-Woman. And there's all these like strange bizarre sort of multi-variations from the multiverse and it just becomes completely mad but it almost becomes like this is the best spider-man story i've seen in ages uh because it's like that it's like they didn't have to you know i think with some of these marvel films they they are so there's so much riding on them and especially the main line ones the main canon ones it's like there's a plug in and play formula. It's like, we, we can do that, but we can't go too crazy because we have to stay within these nice lines to make yeah. sure that everything follows the right plug and play formula for how this should go. And this one, it kind of, it was by the guys who made the Lego film and the, um, and 21 jump street and, uh, who, who just kind of have a really good flair for, you know, like the it's Lego a bit movie. more sort of self-aware then a bit more tongue in cheek. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, yeah a bit more much more self-aware um but yeah just fun and it was just like it's actually a good story here it's almost like you you felt like i'm reading one of the really good spider-man comic book stories i never knew or you know just like a really good standalone story and uh yeah really fun into the spider-verse if you at all interested in superhero films uh that's the one you should see awesome very good um i have i think i do actually have one more that that was from last year um that I'll, I'll crowbar in potentially but you you may have it on your list as well i'm sure you would enjoy it it's death of stalin oh yeah i did see that was that from 2018 it may have crept in 17 i certainly saw it in 2018 so that's good enough for me um yeah just very funny amando Iannucci directing it um so the guys who for the British listeners wrote the thick of it and for the US I suppose what Veep and the film In the Loop um, so it's that sort of political satire um, kind of style kind of crazy everything going wrong in politics all at once very funny stuff and this is about the sort of pretty pretty much true account of what happened in the power grab between all the potential um, potential leaders of the USSR after Stalin died and um, yeah, just very funny, uh, great cast. Uh, Jason Isaacs, absolutely scene stealing as Zukov, yeah. playing it like a kind of Chris Finch from The Office, brash northerner. Um, yeah, yeah, just fabulous, really, really funny. Um, highly recommended. 
Yeah, and it's uh, got Steve Buscemi, right? Um, yeah, uh, Jeffrey Tambor's in it. Um, yeah, bro- really big cast, really, really very good. And they'll, they'll have these moments of like, you know, obviously a lot of the conceit of it is that everyone is utterly terrified all the time. And the, the especially the, uh, it's almost like, you know, in the thick of it, the ministers are worried they could just lose their position or job anytime in here. It's just that they think I might, the get, gulag, yeah. I might be taken out and shot tomorrow yeah. or something off to Siberia. And, uh, and, but they, so they have all the same panics of uh, having, having to be obsequious and having to say just about the right thing so that they're not too agreeable and not too disagreeable. And yeah, that. but I, I do think most of these things are true as well. Like it's obviously delivered in, I'm sure, a much funnier way than things happen. But there's one great scene where they're all they're all in a car park and they all need to drive back to Moscow or to wherever they're going and no one will move out of the car park for fear of letting someone else get out. So they're oh, yeah. kind of blocking each other off for about half an hour, just like tentatively, you know, yeah. um, it's just, it's very funny. Like a lot of humor out of something that, you know, resulted in millions and millions of people dying of famine and other terrible afflictions. So yeah, um, humor can be found in even the darkest places. I think I remember Armando Inucci saying that he, part of his, you know, it, I think it was someone else wrote the original story. Like, I think it was even like an, a, a comic book adaptation of Stalin at the time. Oh, okay. Uh, or, or something like that. Someone wrote this, uh, like, graphic novel, The Death of Stalin, about mm. it. But, uh, but he, yeah, he was really into it because he said, like, almost like Stalin sort of gets away with a bit more than like, you know, say like Hitler or someone where he, he thinks like Stalin sort of gets a bit of an easier ride and he's like as big a monster and, and, yeah. and it, you know, did monstrous things. And, uh, you know, he kind of wanted to like throw, uh, throw more light on that of like how, right, right. how bad it would have been in like, uh, the height of that. Yeah. Soviet Union. Um, yeah. So, how are the old Trotskyots gonna? What do you? Do? Yeah, I wonder if you watch that and you are one of these, you know, these people who pine for the Soviet Union. You want to you sort of assimilate that? They just yeah, turn a blind eye, I suppose. I guess same if you watch First Man and believe that we never land on the moon. Yeah, probably quite a conflicting feeling. You probably just don't go and see it, do you? If you're someone who doesn't believe we landed on the moon, I don't think. Well. Are you going to pick holes in Dominic Chazelle's representation of how we landed on the moon? I don't know. They just avoid it, I suppose. I don't know. I feel like they probably would go. It, it's almost. It's, like, I mean, it's a film, right? It's not like they go, oh, there's your evidence. It's yeah. just a film. Right? It's Ryan Gosling. Yeah, I feel like um, it was. Uh, what was I going to say? Yeah, that that. Although it does show the time we live in that. I genuinely, when I first thought of like, oh, well, well, I mentioned First Man, I did think, oh, that's the moon landing conspiracy. The the, the moon landing people who listen to this are not going to be They're switching off, yeah. I immediately just thought, there's going to be just one person who who listens already who is a massive moon landing landing conspiracy theorist. Good riddance. And, uh, you know, take it up with Damien. (laughs) Which is the films. Gosling did it. Um, yeah, um, one one very overrated film for me last year, George. Cool, change the um, tune. Here we go. This is, we saw it last year, uh, and it was an Oscar winner of last year. Uh, was The Shape of Water by Guillermo del Toro? Mm-hmm. I thought that was the more I've thought about it, I think that might go down as one of the very undeserving Oscar winners. And not that the year that came out in was so spectacular, but I mean, uh, the film had a distinctive style. Um, mm-hmm. For those of you who didn't see The Shape of Water, it was like almost a very kind of old fashioned movie. Um, I think it was set in like the, is it 40s or 50s? Yeah. Something like that. Um, and it, you know, it's almost like Creature from the Black Lagoon meets kind of E.T. Um, meets a kind of romance story where the woman falls in love with the monster and almost they they, ha- they actually do have a kind of physical relationship as well which is very odd because he's sort of a, a big fish monster <laughs> um, but uh, it, you know and I just it just left me very cold I, I didn't feel I didn't feel loathing for the film it was almost 
it was almost worse in a way in that it wasn't divisive. I just didn't, I it sort of had a very cartoon villain where it was just completely ridiculous how, yeah. how villainous this person was. And the it, hateful man. The hateful government agent or whatever it was. And it was just, you know, I, I don't know. I just thought this is, this is five different cliche genres rolled into one sort of pancake that sort of has a nice, you know, it, it's pretty and is nice to look at. The, the, the execution was was sort of good of of a completely non-original idea to me uh, compared to something as brilliant as like Pan's Labyrinth, which was uh, by the same director. I just mm. felt like it didn't, you know, it, it didn't match the heights of that at all. Yes, I agree. I, I, I sort of enjoyed it like in a kind of oh, seven out of 10 sort of level of enjoyment in the cinema and then retrospectively I've probably never thought about it again um, and I don't think it's going to be making waves with people in 10, 15, 50 years. Uh, yeah I think something like Pan's Labyrinth has kind of got a bit of a modern classic status for uh, and and I just think this one it, it, yeah it, maybe it's that maybe it's just that it was a sort of for me it was like a six or seven and it was a film that did seem to get runaway praise at a certain point and people mm. were really talking about it and maybe that's just because it was unusual but it, um it seemed to get completely out of proportion with the film that i feel like in another year it could have not had any conversation and just been fairly pedestrian yeah um yeah so i don't know that one was kind of a, a disappointment for me uh mm. not that i have a strong opinion on what should have won that year instead i can't really remember what nominated but well, we're certainly doing really sort of cutting-edge review stuff, aren't we? We're about a year behind with <laughs> the opinions that we're laying out today, but there we go. Let's, let's start on Hitchcock now. Well, you, you say that, but... Uh, you did watch a lot of Hitchcock films last year. I did. You? I would, I mean, I don't have any more contemporary films from, from last year to talk about. So if we're going to talk about my favourite favorite films of last year... Um, I'm going to have to weigh in with one of them being a Hitchcock film, Dial M for Murder. Um, fabulous, absolutely fabulous film. Uh, Grace Kelly in her pomp. Um, and the film was actually filmed in 3D. It's kind of a bizarrely anachronistic 3D film where I think you would have to be wearing the funny kind of blue and red glasses and things would pop out of the screen. But it's just a really tightly put together, um, it feels like a play. It's set in maybe two, two or three rooms and it's about a man who, like Hitchcock often does, organises to have his wife killed. Uh, and awesome. it's about how, how that pans out. So, um, yeah, actually, you were, you were being a little bit snippy, but I've had to follow through on that and say that that was one of my absolute favourite films that I saw last year. What film was that? What was it called? Dial M for oh, Murder. Oh, Dial M for Murder. Right. Yeah. I've actually never seen... I never knew the plot of that film. I've oh, seen that film that's, my there's life. no spoiler there. It's made like very clearly from the start that that's what yeah. it's about. But it also, it looks fantastic. It looks, it looks like it was shot yesterday apart from a couple of scenes where you know you've got the bad guy driving a car and they go past the same building 15 times but the kind of interior shots just look so like well polished and put together so yeah absolutely endorse endorse that wholeheartedly i'm just still thinking about the idea you were worried that i didn't want hitchcock spoilers <laughs> <laughs> at this at this point i feel like fair game isn't it i mean if if you think the birds is a quaint, sort of charming, <laughs> set in a pet shop rom com, <laughs> yeah. If 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 you're going to be surprised by the birds at this point, I think you're not that bothered about the film. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, how do you feel about late spoilers in general? Do you? I, I'm quite. I'm probably very out. Of, I, I feel like the the current the, the current trend is to sort of find absolutely anything mildly spoilerish to be deeply, deeply upsetting and offensive. And I've sort of never minded, I'll sometimes watch films and I sort of read a synopsis of the plot before. It's not, I don't know, unless it's meant to be a really surprising film, I don't, I'm not someone who really minds that much about spoilers, do you? Yeah, I mean, don't go looking for them, I suppose. You can't say, oh, I was reading a film review and then I found out what happened. I mean, I appreciate often, it happens more with books maybe that a bad review tends to just be a summary of the plot it's almost a film is 
there's more to talk about with the film in many ways because there's more facets to it but um yeah don't go sniffing around the sort of places that you'll see them i think it's more inexcusable when you're at a dinner party or something and you say oh, i've not seen that yet and they go oh well he was dead all along yeah that that's really um i'll never i would never do that that's uh i find that really annoying if people do that but i do um yeah i i don't i don't always think like oh well that's now i now i'm not going to enjoy that because it's yeah. but that being said hereditary is a film that's better the less you read before you go in that well that one actually is not it's like the, the more you are surprised by it is better i think yeah cool well um what else do you have on the list Steve? do you have any other new ones i've only got old films left uh, I have just two others that warrant uh, a briefer mention. Um, one film I did see in 2018. This may reach the cutoff because it. I think in UK it was 2018, but we saw it together, George, which was the film Lady Bird. Oh yes, um, that was one of our that, late night cinema visits, wasn't it? It was it like was. We'd, book, we'd book the cinema to ourselves. I don't think anyone else was in there. Yeah, that was really strange, wasn't it? Um, it was, I think it really was just us, uh, which was kind of beautiful. I mean, I it's, mean probably, that, that is, it's probably like an 11 p.m. start in Shepherd's yeah. Bush on a Wednesday. I might like every cinema visit to be like that. <laughs> Unless I'm seeing like Mission Impossible or a big CG film. You know, if that could be most cinema experiences, uh, that'd be lovely. Empty, um, but for me. Yeah. Um, but uh, Lady Bird, directed and written by Greta Gerwig. Um, did she win or not? She won some kind of screenplay or director Oscar. I think she did. I think she was, uh, I think there was, yeah, I think she won a direct. She oh, was the oh, best director, was she? Maybe that's wrong. She won something, I believe. Um, uh, so, um, yeah, Lady Bird, it's kind of this gentle um, coming of age story. Uh, with character played by Saoirse Ronan and it's kind of just her at a quite an up a very uptight uh, Catholic school in Sacramento uh, the film is kind of a love letter to Sacramento in a sort of way it's uh, it's kind of about growing up I think a lot of the film is essentially about growing up in a place that you sort of eventually want to desperately get the hell away from but also having a kind of nostalgia for it and it's um yeah it's it's again um, a bit like I said about First Man, almost admirable in, in its restraint in some mm. ways, in its, uh, in its not needing to go to anything more than the usual trials of being a teenager. Um, I thought Saoirse Ronan, she's always really good in pretty much everything she's in. Um, yeah, if you, if you didn't know she was very Irish before watching it, you would have no way of knowing it from her performance. Yeah. She's amazing. Yeah. She is, she is really amazing. And um, yeah, I, I just thought that was a, a lovely little film and uh, it's definitely worth checking out. And then the other film is... Uh, just, sorry, just a, a quick Google yeah. has revealed she was nominated for Best Director and for Best Screenplay, but she didn't win either of those. All right, well, I stand corrected. Um, I, uh, also, another little film I enjoyed was Wes Anderson's film, Isle of Dogs, Ooh. which... Um, for a Wes Anderson film, was quite underwatched, I'd say. Mm. Yeah, um, I've, I've uh, not seen it, and I'm a big Wes fan. Yeah, compared to the bigger hits like Grand Budapest Hotel, this was more like under low key, like the Fantastic Mr. Fox film, which which mm. people liked, but I I don't remember it being so popular at the time. But it's Do you think um, that's both because they're animations, the two you've mentioned there, because Grand Budapest Hotel is definitely his like most popular sort of big wide acclaim film i guess royal tenenbaums maybe with hindsight but in the cinema grand budapest probably his biggest film yeah i'd say that tenenbaums and maybe now the others are all kind of mixed in with like you know the life aquatic and stuff like that but no i'd say they're the big ones and uh and and grand budapest i think still definitively his his best film but um this was kind of like an just a kind of really nice little aside it's it's got his fingerprints all over it like everything uh he does it's, he uses similar actors each time there's always like a certain like a wes anderson troupe of actors who sort of yeah. pop up on things um it's uh it's a very oddball story it's it's a really strange plot of this 
Japan has exiled all these dogs that because they carry the disease and they exiled every dog to this strange island off of Japan. And uh, it's kind of about a kid, uh, a Japanese kid who comes to find his lost dog. And the dogs can, the dogs communicate with each other and just talk in a very deadpan Wes Anderson way, but the kid can't understand him and they can't understand the kid. Right. Um, and it's kind of the, there's also the story back in Japan where they're trying to convince the government to uh, repeal the, the the exile law. But it's, uh, yeah, it's just, it's just a good fun. It's not, it's not in Wes Anderson's like, like absolute top tier canon, but um, yeah, enjoyable nonetheless. Nice. It's an honourable mention. Honourable mention, I'd say. Lovely stuff. Um, yeah, I, I think I'll watch it. There's, I don't know if you've seen, there's, there's a, probably a channel on YouTube that sort of dissects the different techniques the authors use, and there's a great one about Wes Anderson, and it, it's just like a sort of, I don't know, film 101 of, of how he puts his stuff together, and just the way that every shot is directly centred. It, like they draw a line split down the middle of the screen and it's true right. of all his films and all his compositions of shots and in real life and in animation it's kind of it's, it's clearly so important to his aesthetic this kind of central symmetry um yeah and yeah. like frames that just look like paintings when you uh you know that you can see everything has been meticulously positioned they look like they take forever to make because it just looks so constructed absolutely yeah the color palettes and the costumes and the font like font is a big deal for him yeah. right it's just yeah. mad um yeah he's he's a great director it, obviously a bit kind of gimmicky and kitschy i i don't know if he could i don't know what the I felt like maybe Grand Budapest was kind of as wide and as big in scope as his filmmaking style will ever allow him to get. You know, it's a borderline film about the Second World War and European terrors in a way. I, you know, he's never going to make a, a darker film than that, really. I don't know. I don't know if his filmmaking lets his ambition go beyond what he did in that one. Yeah, you almost feel like... It's almost like saying, you know... I don't think David Fincher's ever going to direct a film like Knocked Up, a, <laughs> yeah, exactly. a wacky comedy. It's yeah, like yeah. it's almost it's almost not in that not in their language to yeah. do. It, it's some some directors have such a no. It's just some directors have such a distinctive tone and style and and uh, an effect they create that you almost think I don't think they can they they can break out of it. Definitely, this it's almost even. Genre. It's almost like self-imposed limitations possibly as well it's, it's like the white stripes or something as a band right they have a drum and a guitar they're never going to make you know beethoven symphony because they've applied those restraints on themselves so their palette only lets them make garage rock music essentially yeah, and it's a yeah. bit like they've done that um but in a way that's kind of where all good art comes from i suppose if you try and do everything with everything available to you it's just going to be a mess so having those yeah, constraints yeah. is a really useful tool yeah. Um, have you got any more? Uh, not current, but I have in that I crowbarred in a Hitchcock film. I suppose I'll crowbar in a film from, from the early 40s, if that's okay. I mean, you know, we're, we've gone this far. <laughs> yeah, so I feel like Hitchcock's got mentioned on about three episodes. Yeah, I'm, str I'm struggling to think of any other directors I watch now. Um, I'm going to champion, Steve, and this is a film that... Um, my fiance and I watched together and she needed some convincing because it was in black and white and obviously all black and white films are really boring. So yeah, yeah. Tw twisted her arm, but we watched Brief Encounter. Have you seen that? Oh, right. No, um, I actually don't think I've ever seen Brief Encounter. It's absolutely fantastic. I have to say it's fabulous. It's like small scale in its ambition and setting but it packs a punch it's very tense incredible performances like super understated probably the best sort of love story i've seen in a film maybe it's certainly up there it's one of the great british films of all time if not maybe the archetype great british film uh yeah it's it's incredible i'd recommend anyone go watch it it doesn't feel dated at all apart from a couple of little you know sort of um circumstantial old things like you know the lady mustn't go out by herself kind of thing but it feels very fresh and modern in the dialogue it doesn't feel dated beyond that um yeah it's it's absolutely fantastic very powerful um potentially a tearjerker if you're that way inclined um yeah great film can't 
can't um, eulogize about this enough. Yeah, brief encounter. Well, there's a, you know, on that topical note, <laughs> pop, pop, pop that in your viewing list. Yeah. Don't, well, I feel like millennials are getting, you know, older generation. Like, what, the new generation, would they, would they be going back and doing a Hitchcock retrospective? I don't know. Generate, what generation are they called? Z, maybe? Or, yeah, the, the post-millennial, whatever those ones are. Do you think, do you think they'll go and troll through those, those no, classic archives? No, Steve, because they can only watch things as long as a Snapchat video. There's no possible way they could operate outside of the bounds of, of their social media <laughs> platforms. Uh, they, there you have it. Damning indictment. We've got um, them. Um, well, I suppose we mentioned at the very start of this as well that it would be very difficult for us to recommend loads of music and books because we are just talking about films we want to recommend. But if I could recommend a piece of music, um, I'm going to follow on from Brief Encounter and say, I've been trying to listen to a bit more classical music recently. I don't know anything about it. I can't profess to be in any way informed about classical music at all. But um, the soundtrack from Brief Encounter is... Uh, Rachmaninoff, um, it's his piano concerto number two. It's used all the time throughout the film and it, it's really powerfully and well used. And it's a great piece of sort of background piano music, frankly, if you're just working um, or having some music on. Um, I think we talked about in the minimalism one, you referenced that Aphex Twin song. And it's, yeah. it's not in any way like Aphex Twin, but it's the sort of music you could have on in the background and it plays for a long time and it just creates a lovely mood. Um, I think we both do a lot of writing and I really struggle to write if there's lyrics being you know, played oh, in the yeah. music I'm listening to. Listening to. So um, if, you're, if you're out there for a classical music recommendation, there's one for you, Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto Number 2. There you go. Don't say we don't do it all on this podcast. Um, I'm a. I feel like we've covered a lot, probably a a big mouthful of films in this podcast. So I'm gonna I'm gonna narrow it down to. I'd say if I if I was gonna pluck three three essentials, a nice smorgasbord from the list, the the bunch that I gave last year. I'm gonna. I did say that First Man and Phantom Thread on my joint too, but I actually think that. Uh, sorry, my joint in top in second mm-hmm. place. I don't really know what's first actually, but I actually think now. I actually think now, if you're going to say three, I'm going to bump first man out only because I think these three are more original and more interesting. But I'd say Phantom Thread. I'd say the Into the Spider Verse film, mm-hmm. and then I would say um, Hereditary. Interesting. Just because I think that covers a lot of. Um, different tones I think they're all three very original got a very sort of almost signature stamp uh, from the director in there and they do something interesting in their genre Uh, whereas I think First Man is a bit more as what I admire about it it's still it doesn't doesn't do something sort of groundbreaking or new right okay Um, well they're three really good recommendations I probably will investigate that Spider-Man film um because I've I've read and seen some other interesting bits and pieces about it, and you've eulogised about it in a way that makes me feel like I should go and see it. Yeah, it's fun. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. Cool. Um, nice. Um, well, my my three then, if I'm picking three from last year and not from the early you know early part of the Second World War, I would go for in the same first place. Phantom Thread is just beautifully made, sort of masterful directing and a masterful performance. So that remains my number one. And in that I only had four films from the last decade. Oh, five. I had five. Well, I'll cut two away and stick with the square as just being really good fun, really interesting and, um, yeah, enjoyable. And Loving Vincent, another animation from me, as you have one as well. It's just really well made, really looks beautiful and a kind of unique ambition. I've not seen anything else like it. So, um, yeah, big thumbs up for all three of those from me. Yeah, that's a great little armful. Perfect. Um, all right, shall we wrap this one up here? I feel like it's like very hard doing these, doing film reviews in a very concise way because I feel like I want to talk for ages about every film. And maybe in the future we'll do some, I'd like to do some of these where we just literally take a film that we think we can really, uh, you know, let's, really let's go do it. And uh, maybe, maybe. Just do 30 minutes on, you know, a single film we saw or a classic or something. 
For sure. Yeah, maybe not our next podcast, but the next time we talk about film at length, let's let's try that. Let's talk about one. Maybe even um, we could spin off if it's about a certain director or something. But yeah, let's try and hone in on something and see if we can get a bit more, get our teeth into things a bit more. Sure. Um, all right. Well, we hope you enjoyed this. Um, uh, I'm going to go and enjoy New York City, where I've arrived, George. Um, Continuity error there. <laughs> there may have been some pauses in the recording that's neither here nor there um uh yeah and uh next time we talk i'll be in sunny la um possibly streaming straight from the oscars this is just jump cut <laughs> yeah great stuff nice well i've um, i've not really moved so no worries there but um next time you speak to me i'll have seen all of the films you've recommended marvelous Perfect. Well, yeah, thanks everyone for listening and we'll, uh, we'll be back with you soon. Thanks everyone. Cheers guys. Bye-bye.